Hello, and welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about all the ways our legal system doesn't work for us. Today, we're going to broaden our focus and look at all the ways that our political system doesn't work for us. I'm an attorney and your host, Mary Whiteside. Joining me now to talk about this is Daniel G. Newman. He's the author of an absolutely incredible graphic novel, Unrig. It is about how to fix our broken democracy. First, it looks at all of the ways that democracy is rigged. For example, billionaires, they get to promote their favorite candidates. They can pour unlimited money into the political realm to influence who gets to make the rules. And this book looks at how we can limit the influence of big money and redraw the lines of political power, giving ourselves the vote and the voice that we deserve. Daniel is president and co-founder of MapLite. It's a nonprofit that designs, builds, and operates software and data systems to improve democracy. And it specializes in campaign finance, voter information, and government data, all designed to help advance policies that are going to help us, the public. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on and talking um, with us today. It's my pleasure, Mary. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Really, this book was my first graphic novel. It was uh, really fun to read. I found it incredibly uh, digestible. I got the recommendation to read this book after Professor Nancy McLean, who wrote Democracy in Chains, we've talked about that on the podcast before, she recommended it. And I was super impressed with the clarity that you achieved in explaining why the system doesn't work and how it's been designed not to work for us. And who are who are the people behind the curtains, per se, rigging the rules. I, I'm wondering, you know, what led you in your in your life to channel your efforts and your talents at studying um, government and, and transparency and money in politics? Well, it really comes from wanting the outcomes in the country to be better for everybody and looking at why that wasn't the case and, and really coming 20 years ago, trying to improve the situation in my community. So the town I live in, California, they're, uh, the candidates that elect, that raised the most money were the ones that tended to get elected. So way back 20 years ago, I sought to, uh, to think, what can we do about this? And it turned out there, there are states in the country that have public funding of elections and cities that, that have this too. So public funding of elections or clean elections means candidates can run for office without special interest money. And so I started uh, just really never having done a political campaign or a project before, uh, trying to put that into place, uh, finding other volunteers in the community to help out, and over a long period of time, eventually being successful. And that really woke me up into what the the potentials are and what the challenges are in order to improve our democracy. Yeah, and we're. We'll, I want to dive into public funding um, in a little bit, but before we get to that, I want to just talk about Unrig as a graphic novel because I think, you know, in making these these topics accessible, I think it's really interesting that you chose this format. It's so uh, really, it's, it's such a different way of approaching it. How did you come upon graphic novel? 
Well, I've really been looking for ways to tell inspiring stories of people who are fixing our democracy and also to explain to people the intricacies of voting and gerrymandering and these terms that you hear a lot, but not many of us maybe know what they mean. And uh, having it done in pictures and comics, having it fun seemed like an ideal way to, to get people interested because it's really not so off-putting. It's not so complicated. Uh, once you you understand it, and uh, my my collaborator George O'Connor, who drew all the art for the book, an amazing artist and and author himself, uh, points out that when the airplane is trying to um, you know, in an emergency, the airplane gives you comics, right? On the safety card, it has pictures of what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And comics are a form that, that all of us understand intuitively. And it's a great way to learn about things like democracy, which are kind of abstract, but when you put them in pictures, they really come to life. Yeah, it really, it really did. And in we're in collaborating with um, George O'Connor, d- did you actually like get down to helping to design the panels or did you just focus on the 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 word content how did you guys work together well it's really a, a really a back and forth kind of process i would start with a script and he would make the pictures that come to life and then i would uh, point out things um, and have suggestions for him so he was really the driving force between how to present it in terms of graphics, but I also made um, recommendations and suggestions along the line too, which sometimes he would take and sometimes he would ignore and come up with something much better. Sure, of course. That's the, those are the best collaborations, you know, when, when you can do that. Um, and I think also what's great is for the comic format is that for the writer, you have to be concise. You know, you can't have a super long-winded explanation of something because the the format doesn't allow that. So it, it requires a ton of discipline on your end to distill it to its its most um, its shortest form, and that made it so easy to to read. Yes. It was really a pleasure in this book to to have that constraint of having a really tight word count. And so to go back and edit, take out every sentence that isn't absolutely essential, edit every sentence to make it as short and um, engaging as possible. So it, it, gave, it really gave me the opportunity as an author to have something that felt like a polished gem by the time I get it done because of, of that constraint made uh, me go over it so many times to get it just right. Well, I... I th- think it, you absolutely achieved that. And I know from my own trying to write how hard that is to, to, to do that, to, to bring it, to distill it down to its, to its simplest form. And I really encourage my listeners to, to uh, be, there's a link to an independent book store um, to purchase on Reg. And I think you should run out, get it, and then share it with, with your whole network because it is, it really is, not only the clearest example, but it also is so hopeful. And it is the most hopeful book of all of the ones that I've read, and I've read a lot. All right. So the way the format of the book kind of goes through, it looks at a problem, a big problem, and it breaks it down, for example, who gets to run in elections. And then it moves on to like a real life example of an individual or a small group of people that came together to then unrig the system and give the power back to the people. That's kind of like how each chapter goes. And I wanted to highlight just a couple of those, you know, because we can't go through the whole book, but some of them were were just 
particularly came to life in this last election system. For example, Michigan. I was wondering what the Michigan chapter is about unrigging the maps and and, and um, gerrymandering. And I was wondering what your reaction was to the 2022 elections in Michigan. Well, so the the story in, in the book about Michigan, so a woman named Katie Fahey, she's despairing in November 2016. Her favorite candidate, Hillary Clinton, has just lost the presidential election. And instead of just doing nothing. She decides to do something about it. And she decides she wants to fix gerrymandering in Michigan. And she posts a social media message, anyone want to help me do it? And she's flooded with response. And that it turns into a grassroots campaign to take uh, gerrymandering out of the hands of politicians and put it into the hands of citizens. And excuse me, uh, I should say gerrymandering to go back is uh, dr- who draws the lines for for campaigns and like, where does your congressional district and your your city council district, those lines that said where the voters are. And when politicians control this process as they do in many places in the country, they invariably draw the lines to create safe seats for themselves and squeeze out the opposing party, which is good for the politicians, but not so good for the rest of us who want real accountability and choice in elections. And so this successful campaign that led to a ballot measure that passed and changed Michigan's law has now rolled into more activism in Michigan. And you had the passage of Proposal 2, November 8th, 2022, uh, last month, as we're speaking right now, a big expansion of voting rights in Michigan. Like so many places in the country, there have been uh, threats to take away voting rights, make it more difficult to the vote. And Proposal 2, which just passed in Michigan, has a nine-day window for early in-person voting, makes it so uh, the voter ID requirements are clear and not onerous for voters, make uh, ballot drop boxes and prepaid postage, just a whole host of things that really every place should have. But this was a a coalition effort that brought that about and continuing the the pro-democracy message from the anti-gerrymandering measure. Yeah. And it's so inspiring because you could see just the different results in Michigan. You had more you know, diversity in who was elected. It wasn't, it was much more representative of the number of people that are voting for Democrats or Republicans in Michigan. Instead of when you have gerrymandering, you can have, say in North Carolina, I think they have uh, less than 50% vote Republican, but they have the majority of the political power goes to Republicans because of the gerrymandering. And it was the same in Michigan. And so now they have, they have changed that with these independent redistricting commissions to draw the lines more fairly. It's a huge victory for voters and and for political accountability. It can be done in other places that are gerrymandered. It is and it, and it shows it's it's a pretty quick proof of how you change the rules of democracy even a little bit and you can get a much better outcome. People think we're we're destined to be on this this negative path, but that, that's really not the case. And that's what the unrig my unrig book shows is that you can you can actually make a difference, change the rules, and then an election cycle or two later, you can get much better outcomes and get politicians that much better represent the public. Absolutely. Let's go back to that public financing of elections because I think we're seeing even in places where they haven't done that. You know, you're seeing different people get into office and that can uh, bring up issues or, or they're going to they're going to care about things in a different way. What made me think of that is this new freshman congressman from Florida, Maxwell Alejandro Frost, and he 
I think he's a Gen Z, and he goes up to D.C. He's got to get an apartment. He tells, you know, the landlords, I have bad credit. You know, he's a congressman now. And he, they're like, oh, no problem. And he put in his application and he was denied the apartment. He lost the application fee. And and so this is an example of, of you know, a renter. You know, it's like there's a lot of renters, especially I live in Los Angeles. There's tons of, of us renters. And there's not a whole lot of political power that renters have because renters don't have a lot of money. So you put somebody who's a renter in a position of power and they're going to care more about people that are like them too, you know? So I think that's that's really important. And one of the in one of the chapters looks at who gets to run. And if you don't have a lot of money and, it, and elections are privately financed, how are you going to run a campaign? So can you talk about kind of the different options for public financing that that localities have come up with. Absolutely. So the idea of public funding of elections, sometimes called clean elections, is just as you say, Mary, to to remove that barrier to office. So it's not about your personal wealth or your connection to wealth. You can get you can have a chance to run for office and win if you're a grassroots community leader, uh, have good ideas, good experience, basically everything you need to be as a candidate, even if you don't, even if you're not rich or you're not willing to, to take big money from lobbyists. So New York City has for several decades has had a matching fund system. You can run for office and you get a $10 contribution. It's matched with another $80 by the city. So that allows candidates to do grassroots fundraising, have the voters who they represent be also the donors to their campaign. Another model and the same kind of idea, but even more innovative is in Seattle, which is called a democracy dollar system or democracy voucher system. Every person in Seattle receives $100 in vouchers and coupons they can give to political candidates for mayor or city council. So that means you're running for city council. You can go door to door. You can go to uh, neighborhood picnics, tell people what you want to do for them, ask for their support, and they can give you $100 in these vouchers that you then turn in for money, $100 from the city. And so candidates can raise all the money they need from the communities, even from low-income communities, now have money to fund candidates and get better representation. And I'm pleased that that MapLite, my organization, was one of the 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 seven organizations that led a successful campaign for Oakland, California to pass democracy vouchers just last month in the November election. And so Oakland will be the second city in the country to have democracy vouchers. Well, that's something we really should think about down here in Los Angeles and really and really everywhere. I mean, we just witnessed uh, our mayoral campaign where Rick Caruso tried to come in and essentially buy the election and spent, what, $100 million trying to become mayor. And it was it was quite worrisome as to whether or not that was going to be effective, you know, because you do sort of feel like, well, how do you combat that? You know, we can't, we can't raise equivalent amounts of money, like, you know, regular small donors can't do it. So these clean elections and getting those as put in place really does a ton to give, you know, people who don't have a lot of money a voice and that people would want to court our votes. Absolutely. And Los Angeles actually does have a pretty good matching funds, public funding of election system, but it is possible for wealthy opponents or uh, large outside spending, outside campaigns to have a big influence. Right. Those, um, unfortunately, the, the current makeup of the Supreme Court has limited what can be done to limit 
spending from very wealthy interests. But with the clean elections, public funding model, candidates can still run and win without dependence on special interest money. Now that you mentioned that, I remember them saying that he he decided not to take the matching fund because he wanted to spend more. Well, I yeah, the Supreme Court is a huge problem, which kind of gets back to what we typically talk about on the podcast. Uh, it's a huge problem as far as putting its thumb on the scales of big corporate moneyed interests and not on the side of the voter. So I think that's and the only way, of course, we can change that is to change who we have in Congress so that and so that we can regulate the the Supreme Court. So it all goes back to getting our voice heard at the at the lower level so that we can that so that we can have a chance to change the Supreme Court. And again, going back to the Supreme Court, they really have been doing a pretty awful, well, actually it depends on who, what, who, what side you're on, pretty awful job as far as if you want more people to vote. They have been putting their thumb on that as well. And you talk about that in the book, you know, who gets to vote and expanding that voter base. So I would love to hear uh, all the different ideas about, because I thought this this really blew my mind as to all the different ways that we could expand the voting the voting base. So one thing that that is that is uh, fun to know about is why why are elections on Tuesday, right? And you think about it, and there's not really a good reason for modern era, but there's a great reason back in the 1840s because when election day was set, it might take a day to travel to the nearest polling place on foot or by horse, right? And Sunday was a Christian worship day, and Wednesday was the market day when farmers sold their crops, so they stuck in Tuesday as the election day, and that's still election day, right? Even though we're not in the 1840s and we don't travel by horse. And so there's modern ways to expand this, which some states have done and some states haven't, is to make uh, voting. Why not? You don't have to do it on Tuesday. You could do it for up to a week before or two weeks before. You can register to vote on same day. Like, why do we make people register and then vote? Plenty of other countries, the government keeps track of who its citizens are. You don't. You shouldn't really need to have registration. You can just go and vote. In the U.S., there's same-day registration, which kind of accomplishes that in a lot of places. And so there's there's all sorts of ways that it can be made incrementally easier so people don't have to take off time from work to vote. And, and you think about who has the flexibility to take time off of their jobs to vote. It's, it's the people that are more privileged in society, right? And the people who are less privileged have less flexibility in their schedules. And so it's just a, re- a way of removing biases that are currently in the system that try and push the system to outcomes that um, are only good for a small percentage of the population to make it possible for everyone's voice to be heard. Yeah, I think automatic voter registration makes the most sense. Everyone's registered and then it just becomes, you know, winnowing down those who can't vote, who aren't able to vote. And we also can talk about that, you know, in in Florida, you know, and and the felony disenfranchisement. You know, what is what is really the purpose of that? You know, who is it benefiting? In Florida, it was they wanted to give people back their right to vote. But you know, the state government officials created all of these extra hurdles as far as, you know, well, they have to make sure they've paid all their court fees and, well, we can't find what their court fees are and then arresting people who, you know, may have made a mistake, you know, to all to discourage, all to discourage voting. So I think it's really important when you are in an area like that to pay attention 
what are the reasons why people don't want as much voting? Like, why Why is that? What? Who does that benefit? You know, these are the questions that, that we need to be asking. What state do you think does the best as far as uh, voting? Gosh, I, you know, I don't know comprehensively, but California, where I live, does a very fine job. Uh, they now send mail ballots to everyone who, who wants a mail ballot permanently. And then you can either put that ballot back in the mail or you can actually go to the polls and vote yourself. Colorado actually has a good model called the Vote Center. So instead of making you vote in one particular location by your house, you can vote at a number of centers anywhere in your county. So maybe it's where you work instead of at home. So those are a couple good example states to look at. Yeah, I think the, the, the California ballot drop boxes are, are great. They're so convenient. Uh, I use mine all the time. If you want to vote in person, you can. So that's available as well. They send these really helpful voter guides out with the different proposals, and you can do your research about that. They don't do a very good job about educating anybody about the judges. That's pretty universal. The areas really need to work on that. You don't know who they are, or what they stand for, or what their records are. It's very, very hard to find any accurate information about the judges. But I really do wish in California that we could have a little bit better uh, laws about who's supporting different propositions and how the languages about those propositions are written, how they, uh, you know, it's, there's, it lacks transparency. So I think that's an area that California could certainly improve on because it's confusing, very confusing as to who is, who, who exactly wants this done. I don't know. And that's important to me. Um, who is pushing for this? So Mary, one thing about voting that's worth considering is just how close so many of our elections are in our current political system. I mean, just looking at the presidential elections. So Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton with uh, like really relative handful of votes, less than 200,000 votes if they had switched. Uh, And uh, the whole, uh, and we would have a different president. And then Joe Biden uh, won the election over Donald Trump with an even smaller number of votes that if they had switched would have gone the other way in a, a country in excess of 300 million people. And so these small changes make a big difference. You reference Florida, for example, we all know in 2000, Bush versus Gore, how George Bush was elected um, with you know a, a just barely a vote margin in, in the case of the Republican Party falsely removing voters from the rolls that would have made the difference in that election. So small things make a big difference. And so every one of these these incremental differences, like the ability to vote early or vote by mail or having postage page ballots, uh, the ability to cure ballots if your signature isn't on it, that you can you can correct that. All these things really add up because sometimes our elections are so close. Uh, we just witnessed, of course, in Georgia, right, a very, very close Senate race that ends up deciding whether it's uh, 50 or 51 votes in the, the Senate for the Democratic side. So over and over again, we've seen for years, small things have a huge difference politically. And that's an opportunity uh, and an excitement for people to get involved in their own city and their own state because small things can make a big difference. I just listened to the Rachel Maddow podcast Ultra about how there was this Nazi, there were, you know, congressmen that were involved in a Nazi plot to, you know, overthrow democracy and insert fascism. And her kind of main big takeaway from all of that, which is fascinating, was that it wasn't one person. Everybody had roles. Law enforcement has a role. Journalism has a role. Individual people who just figured it out and 
opposed different uh, Christo-fascists in their area and white nationalists, and they infiltrated groups. And so it was like the opposite of the strong man, I'm the only one who can fix something model. It's, no, everybody has a a part to play. You you see where your area of influence is, and that's where you that's where you go after things. And so it isn't this notion of like, well, it's got to be just one person, and I can't possibly fix it all, so I can't do anything. And and that's how I see this message and and this book. It's that same message of like, we all have a part to play, and it is doable. Fixing democracy is not something you do by yourself. It's something you do with other people. My best advice to people is join a group that is working to fix our broken political system. There's probably already a group in your town or your state. Uh, Two people is enough to get started. When I passed public funding of elections years ago in my town, it was just me and one other one other person, neither of whom had political experience that that led to success and now uh, my my work in doing this across the country. So there's a lot of messaging in the press and on social media about hopelessness and it's not possible. There's a lot of interest from the the big money side to tell people that, oh, we're all independent and we, we shouldn't be acting together. But that's the exact opposite of what we actually do need to change our country. When you think of all of the improvements to our country over the last 200 plus years since it was founded, without exception, all of the improvements came from people working together, joining together in groups to make something happen. Absolutely. Organization. And and that is where we, that's where we get our power and that's where we can get stuff done. The last area of the book that I was, that I wanted to chat about, I was really interested because I hadn't heard about it before really, is the ranked choice voting and the proportional representation and kind of the different ways that we can have a more representative Congress or more representative local government, or yeah, the, the flip side of that, people don't like any candidate, uh, so they kind of or they think, well, my candidate that I want to vote for isn't going to win, and so they just sit it out. So, could you talk about those different options and and how that how that benefits people? Sure, Mary. Well, the example you give happens all the time. I love this person, but I'm not going to vote for them because I don't think they can win. Why should we put that responsibility on voters to somehow guess if their candidate is likely to be like, what does that really have to do with choice and, and democracy? That constriction happens when you have candidates running for office and whoever receives the most votes wins, like is the case for every congressional district in the country and most other elections. But there's some places that have what's called ranked choice voting, that you rank your candidates. This person I love, they're my first choice, but if they don't win, this other person, that's my second choice. And what happens is when the votes are counted, if your first choice candidate doesn't have a chance of winning, maybe they got the least votes, even though you like them, then they go to your second choice. And so your vote doesn't disappear because you vote for the person you like, it moves to your second choice candidate. And this is like a simple system. It's worked really well around the country. New York City just implemented it for its elections. Alaska implemented it for its state elections. State of Maine now has it. In Portland, Oregon, it just passed this last month in November, uh, proportional ranked choice voting, which is the same thing, except that instead of voting for just one office, you're ranking candidates for multiple offices at a time. Like maybe you're ranking, there's three city council members and you rank, so there's 10 candidates and you rank them one through 10. So then the net result of this is you get a population, an elected 
offices that better represents the public. So if you're a Democrat in a majority Republican area, like your vote doesn't really matter. Or if you're Republican in a highly Democratic area, electing just one representative. But if you have ranked choice voting uh, and you're voting for more than one person at the same time, like uh, for example, then you might get two Republicans and a Democrat elected or two Democrats and a Republican so that the result of the election more closely mirrors the preferences of the voters as a whole. Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. When I was, I canvassed for Elizabeth Warren uh, back in 2020 and I talked to so many, and I was just talking to Democrats because that's where they sent us. And I talked to so many that were like, oh, we love her, but we don't think that she's going to win. And it's like, Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, this is the time to vote for her in the primary. But um why do you need to, you know, this is this is when you can vote your heart if you don't have if you don't have ranked choice voting, this is the time to do it. But that it was ingrained this this notion of like I need to pick I need to be the one who picks the winner, you know, as opposed to picking whose policies and vision most align with what your values and what you're looking to put forward. These are really great ways of getting getting it out there so you don't feel like, oh, I've thrown my vote away and I, I or there's no point in it of it all. But I feel that it could be a way to kind of counter maybe the misogynistic tendency that, you know, or, or barrier that you see. It's like, well, if you feel that you still get to say, you can you can really kind of put forward the person that you want. Exactly. And ranked choice voting also expands the range of political debate. So right now, it's easy for the media to dismiss candidates as, quote, non-viable if they're not uh, from one of the major political parties or they're not saying what's thought of as, quote, mainstream. But in ranked choice voting, every vote matters and, and you can't really rule anyone out. And so you have a, a wider range of debate and a range of range of people who could be seen as competitive. The other thing ranked choice voting does is it, it decreases attack ads because if I'm running for office and I might I don't want to attack my opponent because I want the opponent's supporters to put me down as a second choice. And so there's an incentive for more positive campaigning that has actually been borne out in studies. And that's another reason why ranked choice voting is a, is really helpful all along, all across the board. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people would would love it's a, election seasons are long and it's it's a lot of negativity out there when you have these attack ads so i think that would be a giant benefit to to people's psyche to not have to listen to that all the time yeah and it, it's if it's uh it points to yet another way where the rules of democracy determine the outcome so whatever it is that you want government to be doing and to improve the lives of the citizens and our planet is probably not happening because of the rules about who can take political money and who can give to middle money and who can run for office and who can vote and so that's why uh, i encourage people to really focus on fixing democracy as a core area. If if you can change ranked choice voting in your city or state, for example, then you're going to get an electorate that better is responsive to you and other citizens. And they're just a lot more likely to put into place the changes that you want. Yeah, because you think to yourself, oh, well, I can only, the only way that I get to, to, to have a say in democracy is choosing choosing who gets elected. But, you know, a lot of it really, I, I hadn't really thought either about how can I change the rules? So it's, it, it does broaden your perspective and, and 
and it gives real concrete examples as to how when you change that, it does get better and it does and you do affect a different outcome. So I think it's, you know, it really has changed the way I've looked at things. And then you see it, you see it in action. You look at Michigan, you look at what they did in a, in a pretty short period of time. I should tell you that the the opponents of democracy, uh, that um, they certainly understand this. So uh, Nancy McLean's book, Democracy and Change, which you mentioned, and and I, I learned from her and put in, in my book on RIG, the opposition to democracy has had one of their big proponents has had this saying for years, a focus on the rules, not the rulers, because that person, an economist, understood that presidents come and go, elected officials come and go, but it's the underlying rules that determine how get elect, who gets elected and how those people will behave once in, in office. So we too, who want a better democracy that's more accountable to citizens, also need to keep in mind that we should focus not so much on the rulers, although that's important, like who are we elect, but especially on the rules. And that's where to have the greatest impact. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. So uh, MapLite, can you kind of uh, explain a little bit about what you do, what you do with MapLite, what it, you know, what effect they're having on things? Yes, we um, so we promote uh, clean elections laws, like in this democracy dollars victory in Oakland, California that I mentioned earlier. We promote transparency for elections, like uh, a law in Arizona that just passed last month that ends secret money in election and makes all money have to be disclosed. The original source of the money. We build software for government that makes it easier for the public to see the money that people give to mm -hmm. politicians. And we also publish nonpartisan voting information. So we have a website, votersedge.org. If you're in California, you can look up who's going to be on your ballot and meaningful information about them. It's all nonpartisan, a breath of fresh air, and a money-dominated political system. And we plan to expand that nationally as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's... I was... I was really pleased to see that pass in Arizona. Arizona is uh, is a kind of a wild place. I had not living, not coming from the West, like seven years out here. I just didn't understand Arizona, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of all over the place <laughs> politically. So it was. I was really pleased to see them pass that. I think that is a that needs to be everywhere. Uh, you know, the transparency in, in money is one of the worst effects on all levels of government, on the judiciary, you know, who's putting money into getting people on the bench. Yeah, I would love to see that that legislation, um, you know, go around the country. The other side, as you mentioned before, who's going against democracy, they have ALEC, and they're sending bills all over the place trying to, trying to thwart democracy. So it would be great if we can take uh, pro-democracy things and spread those to areas, you know, so that we can, we can have our voices as well. What is, what's next? What's next for you in this project? Um, anything interesting? We're, we're looking to, yeah, we're looking to, to expand democracy vouchers, clean elections uh, beyond Oakland and to other cities in California and elsewhere. We've been contacted by folks around the country who want to bring that to, to their city. So I think there's a lot of excitement and potential about doing something that's not just defensive to make, to stop democracy from getting worse, but to really make it 
better and more inclusive and investing in the kind of democracy that we want to see. I think that's great. I think that spread would be such a huge benefit. And I I would love that because I think we really need to be listening to everybody, not just the people that has disposable income that they can put into politics. It's their their opinion is not the only thing that's important. And it's not the only thing that's going to make things better here for everybody else. So I, again, I appreciate your time coming to chat with us today and all the time that, and effort that it took for you to, to uh, make this book. Uh, and I really encourage all of my listeners, again, go out and get it. It's a perfect thing to, to snuggle up with in the winter and get ready to fight for democracy. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Mary. And again, check out the show notes because there's going to be a link to an independent bookstore to purchase that book. And uh, this episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside, mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson, social media by Jen Nicholson. You can always find the podcast on Twitter at CourtPod or drop an email at mayitdispleasethecourt at gmail.com. We would love for you to rate and review the show because it helps others find the program. Our theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. She's a former public defender. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing $9. You can also check out the show notes to learn more about him. Thank you. Paid to cry, paid more than